Welcome to Bookaholics, the Paris Institute for Critical Thinking's podcast series dedicated to books. In this series, we introduce you to some recent and relevant books, our own books, and obviously classic books that we just can't stop talking and teaching about. My name is Christoph van Houten, and in this episode of Bookaholics, I'm joined by my good friend Adam Katlak to talk about his latest book, The Ethics of Sports Fandom, published by Rutledge. Hello, Adam, and welcome. Hello to you. Great to see you, and uh, really excited to have this conversation. Well, it's lovely to talk to you. Now, Adam, as usual, we always give the first word to the author here at Bookaholics. You wrote the book, so who better than you can tell us what it is about and above all, what you intended or hoped to achieve with it. So words for you. Yeah, I think it was the motivation for the book was really straightforward. It was taking stock of my own life and thinking about how much I devoted to watching sports. And wondering whether or not that made any sort of sense, uh, the hours spent on the couch. Most of my fandom is uh, via television. Mm -hmm. So it's a lot of time watching sports sitting at home. Um, I do go to games sometimes, um, but most of the games I watch and the teams I support, I do uh, through the television. And so just sitting back and asking whether or not all that time I was spending watching sports made any sense, given, (laughs) given all the other things there are to do in the world. Um, I think also that sort of coincided at a point in my life where um, I was sort of noticing all of the concussion issues that were happening in American football. Um, and since, you know, one of the main sports that I follow and teams I support uh, is Amer- through American football, so I started to really worry about the ethics of watching a sport that was imposing that kind of damage on uh, other people's brains mm. and whether or not I could justify whether or not I could justify deriving pleasure from an an activity that imposed that kind of damage. And so sort of just the general reflection on how all the time I was spending coinciding with uh, the concussion crisis in American football really motivated me to kind of dig in. And a lot of my philosophical work is an effort to kind of understand or iron out some perplexity I have in my own life. And so I started to dig through and kind of piece together if I could make any sense of what, you know, what it means to be a sports fan, what role being a sports fan can play in a flourishing human life and, you know, what the appropriate relationship is between fans and the athletes that they support. And that sort of kicked off the kicked off the research project It took a few different twists and turns. Uh, the argument kind of got worked out over the series of uh, a few years, and um, I'm, I'm more or less happy with how things turned out. You always want could tweak or aren't sure that you made as good a case you could have made uh, at certain points, but I'm mostly happy with how it turned out. You sort of asked what I uh, what I hope to achieve with it. Mm. Um, I hope I hope to have kind of solidified my own thinking. So again, this act of self-reflection and self-examination that motivates a lot, a lot of my work. And um, I think I've done that. I, I feel, I feel like I understand my own fandom a little better than I did, a lot better than I did five years ago. Um, as for other readers, I, I mostly just hope to prod reflection. Mm. You know, I, uh, I stand by most of the main claims I make in the book. Um, but I don't expect everybody is going to agree with me. There's some chapters and some arguments where I'm pretty sure very few people will agree with me, and that's mm. okay. 
but I, if I can motivate some sports fans to be a bit more reflective about their fandom and to think about their fandom in a new way, I'll be happy. And if I can entice some people who are skeptical about the value of being a sports fan, that maybe we're not all just Neanderthals crushing beer cans against our forehead, um, then I'll be happy. I'll be happy with that too. Yeah. Okay. So, but before digging a little deeper in your book and, and the beer can crushing on the head. I would like yeah. to confront you with two statements, uh, one by a French theoretician, uh, Jean Baudrillard, and the other by the British philosopher, David Papineau. That's, uh, these are, are things that I have thought about as well. And, and I think it's it's quite interesting to ask these questions to sport fans and and uh, and see how they, how they consider it. So, to begin with, Papino, uh, he agrees with the famous and even the mythical Liverpool coach Bill Shankly, who claimed that soccer is one of the most important aspects of life. And although Papino uh, would probably not go so far as Shankly's his famous Buddha that f football is not just a matter of life and death, but it is much more important than that, he does claim that soccer has a mirroring function of larger society. Now, contrary to that, with Baudrillard, from his side, he disagrees with all of this. For him, soccer is a pure and simple disinterest in the reality of everyday life. Soccer, but one can probably enlarge Baudrillard's claim and say that all sports are simply speaking forms of indifference to actual reality of normal and daily life. And I think Chomsky and Umberto Eco also said something very similar. Now, I know that these are two radically opposed stances and both hold some appeal. But all of us who like to watch, think or even play sports have to face this binary opposition. And it is also present in your uh, work in the various uh, forms and arguing against escapism that you use. So what are your, your thoughts on this opposition? In general, I'm skeptical of, I guess I'm skeptical of the concept of everyday life. <laughs> I am skeptical of the ways in which we try to split things out from everyday life and we try to say, well, you know, there are these questions and these pursuits, but then there's real life or everyday life over here. I, I think that sports are a human activity in which people engage. Um, it is part of the everyday lives of the athletes who, you know, participate in those activities. When I go into campus, you know, I talk about this in the book. When I drive into campus, I drive right by the football practice field. I actually drive by a number of practice fields um, on my way into campus. And I see athletes, you know, practicing early in the morning um, who are going to be sitting in my classes uh, in a few hours. And it's part of their everyday life that they get up and they <laughs> they go practice and then they go to class and they have lunch and they play their games on the weekends. And it's part of it's part of everyday life. And so I'm, and you know, when sports fans are watching games, what did I do yesterday? Uh, I did some work in the morning. I took the dog for a walk. Um, I watched the Wisconsin Badgers play a basketball game. Um, I did some laundry and uh, had dinner with my wife and I was just part of everyday life. And so mm -hmm. I, I'm sort of skeptical of this hard split between, um, between sports or or much of anything else in everyday life and so part of what i'm trying to challenge in the book is the is that idea right the idea that we can escape from everyday life when we're um, engaged in our fandom or when we're engaged in i would i would extend it i don't i don't make this case in the book but i would extend it to a lot of other pursuits as well 
that we can't really ever fully escape mm-hmm. from everyday life. At the same time, I'm I'm sort of skeptical of the, and I don't know if this is exactly what Papineau is um, suggesting that sports are a microcosm of of life, right? They they kind of reinscribe a lot of the issues and things that we see in quote unquote everyday life in a in a different sphere. Um, I mean, again, I think sports are their own distinct activity that have their own distinct value. Mm. Um, it's a different sort of activity from painting or music or, you know, any of the variety of other things that human beings can do mm-hmm. um, that has its own that has its own value. And I, I think we kind of can distort sports by trying to make it do something that it's not really suited to do. Mm. If we try to read too many, too many lessons into sp- what sports are trying to teach us or mm. uh, what they say about society more generally, mm. then I think that we can distort sports in that way as well. I, that's not to say, right? That's not to say that a lot of the issues that affect our society more generally also show up in sports. I mean, that's not to, sorry, that's not to deny that. Mm. Clearly, a lot of the issues that show up in our society also show up in sports, but that's just because sports are a part of a part of life for a lot of people. So it's mm. not surprising that if we have issues of racism in society, that they're going to show up in sports. It's not surprising that if we have other issues of justice, that they're going to show up in sports. Uh, it's not surprising that if you have um, conflicts between labor and capital, that they're going to show up in sports. So. Mm. I mean, you know, but I, I, I'm really resistant to trying to see sports as a, um, again, the the word microcosm, like mm. that it's that it's just society writ small. Mm-hmm. It's <laughs> um, not a mirror. It's not a mirror. Yeah, I, 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 I deny that it's a mirror, even if it does sometimes. Again, a lot of the issues that we see elsewhere also show up in sports. So, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm sort of skeptical of both sides, yeah. <laughs> both mm-hmm. sides of that, uh, the divide that. Uh, that they're pressing there. Yeah, I, I could not agree more. But that's <laughs> my take. Anyway, staying one more second in the theoretical sphere of, of the last question, but also this topic you uh, confront in your book. How do you justify the combination of your supposedly highbrow and ivory tower interest and job in philosophy with your interest and even study of what is supposed to be the very low culture association of sports? even those extremely down-to-earth sports like American football and soccer. And for all clarity, the tone of my voice, voice is very ironic here. Yeah, I could tell before I got to the end of the end of the question when I was reading it before that it was that it was ironic uh, coming from you. Um, yeah, I mean, another another split that I question generally is the split between high culture and low culture. I'm I'm I don't I don't know what to make of of that that divide. I'm not a cultural studies uh, person. And so I'm, I'm sure that I could be informed about what the hard and fast distinctions are between uh, supposedly high culture and supposedly mm. low culture. But one of the things I'm, I'm trying to question in the book is that distinction. Mm. And what I, what I do as an argumentative strategy is just try to show, show how many of the things that people seem to admire or think are valuable about so-called high culture pursuits also show up in sports. Mm. (laughs) Um, And so maybe that's accepting the divide in a way. I I had some ambivalence about doing this uh, as an argumentative strategy. Maybe you're sort of accepting the divide by playing on, playing on their ground, so to speak, if you're Mm. accepting, you know, 
trying to justify the value of sports by showing how it's like so-called high culture. Mm. I sort of sometimes worried that that was a way of accepting the premise, mm. uh, which I deny. At the same time, I think, um, A, I think that sports do have a lot of the value and watching sports and following sports and being invested in sports does have a lot of the value that people tend to attribute to other high culture pursuits, uh, to high culture pursuits. Um, and so if it's the case that that's what gives those things value, then I think sports also, uh, also has it. I also, you know, in trying to keep with the anti-escapism um, line of the book, I, I do think it's okay to think about the ways in which sports can challenge sort of our higher capacities. Uh, yeah. A reviewer on my manuscript kind of pushed me on this point, I think, on this point, I think fairly to say, well, does that mean you have to engage with sports mm. as a way to engage your higher capacities, your higher reflective abilities? Does, can't you just watch a game to enjoy watching a game? Mm. And I think, I think the answer is yes, you, of course, of course you can. Many people do. Um, but I also think it's okay to think about the ways in which things that seem mundane and simple, um, are subtly complex and and can at least open opportunities for reflection that we might not see. So that's how I reconcile the supposed <laughs> the supposed divide between the high high minded intellectual pursuits and the investigation into the lower things. <laughs> <laughs> and and I would also say that certain goals are 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 actually pieces of art. So you have the extreme high culture if a totti makes everybody stand up. And I'm saying this as a Lazio fan. So. <laughs> right. Anyway, turning now to your main argument, and uh, I, which I would like you to comment a bit on. Now, you state that although there is unquestionable, like you just said, there is unquestionable value in being a fan, uh, fans need to forget themselves and dedicate their attention to the athletes. So summarizing it a bit, and I hope I'm right in this, sum uh, in this summary. Not only is there no I in team, but there is also no we in it. And this not only regarding any individual sport and its teams, but also regarding international squads. Uh, this is quite the counterintuitive argument, but I like it. Would you comment on it a little bit? So one of the arguments I start out with in the book is uh, questioning fans' use of we when talking about the teams they support. And this is something that I've gotten, basically nobody agrees with me. I get a lot of pushback <laughs> on it. Nobody agrees with me, and that's okay. Yeah. Um, but really, really what I want to press is just to make a, dis whether or not fans ever talk about teams using we, I want I want to press the distinction between fans and and athletes. Just that, just, getting fans to accept the idea that they aren't the ones who are playing the games mm. as a way to a, a better appreciate, I think, what's happening on the field. That's that's the motivation for that line of argument. Um, and I think it it has the advantage of putting, uh, A, I think it's, I happen to think it's true. So I think, you know, fans aren't playing the games. Fans don't win the games. Fans don't lose the games. And so I think it's just, I think it's true. Teams, players, athletes win, lose, uh, draw. But so I think it's true, but I also think it helps put the fans plight in a particular perspective mm. and it, 
you know, I think one of the reason that fans are inclined to identify with the teams, I mean, I think there's a variety of complicated reasons, um, some of which having to do with culture and identity and and so on. And uh, readers who are interested in this angle uh, should read Erin Tarver's book, The Iron Team, that I rely on a lot in my own book, where she kind of looks at the way in which sports fandom as a way to construct our identities and locate ourselves in the world and in all of those sorts of things that I think that I think sports do and can play that sort of function. Um, but I think that I think we're inclined to do a lot of those things because we're as fans, we we struggle with the lack of control over we have over the things we care so much about. One of one of the one of the primary characteristics i think that defines fandom is a sort of helplessness mm. we we want something so bad we want our team to win so bad and yet there's basically nothing that we can do uh to bring it about and that i think there's i talk about this in the in the book i think there's lessons in that about life more generally i think you know this being invested in the well the outcome of things over which we have no control is a fundamental part of the human predicament um, and so, you know, I think keeping keeping it keeping that framework in mind, when we lose that framework, when we think as fans that we have some control and we think as fans that we are somehow responsible for the outcome of the games, I think it distorts things in a way uh, that loses, you know, causes us to lose perspective on mm. on what's really going on on the field. And I think some of the sublime sublimity of sports is precisely that. I, I'm a Tottenham uh, Hotspur fan and the game on Saturday against Man City was just this <laughs> roller coaster of of lack of I mean you know these wild swings of drama from one mm. thing to the next and you have no idea you have no idea what's going to happen and that's part of we we lose that if we if we invest ourselves too much in the in what's going on I think we lose this sense of watching this thing unfold over which we have mm over which we have no control. So it's it's partly uh, a metaphysical claim, sort of distinguishing between fans and athletes is a metaphysical claim, just trying to draw that distinction. Um, in part, it's a, a way to frame and understand the particular drama of sports, right? We're mm. watching something unfold uh, over which we have no control, and that leads to a lot of the pain. <laughs> mm. And it also leads to a lot of the um, the ecstatic joy when the unex when the unexpected happens. You know when mm. Harry Kane when when Harry Kane scores the goal in the 95th minute after having just, you know, conceded to to uh, level the level the game, and so you win this you win this game that they have no expectation of happening. And it, I was hoarse for the next 24 hours because I was yelling <laughs> so loudly at the uh, yelling so loudly at the television. <laughs> yeah. You just use two words, if I, if I may, may dig a little bit deeper here. And of course, and you talk about that the we distorts, that it it, it it makes you to lose a part of it. What if this distortion is exactly the essence of fandom? That would I, be my, uh, my, my only counter argument to your, well, it's not even an argument. I'm just poking a, a little bit here. What if the distortion and the losing out is exactly what the fans want? That they exactly want to see it distorted. That's because they claim it's a we. And by taking that away, you take away the essence of fandom. 
I certainly think that a lot of that's what a lot of fans want. It's it's why there's this um, consistent use of of we. I, so I I don't deny that fans want that sort of identification. Mm. I don't deny that fans think of themselves often as part of the part of the team. I mean, part of the mm. team, right? The loss, the the team's losses, their their mm-hmm. loss. Uh, so I, I I don't deny that that's an impulse. What I deny is that it's a good impulse. <laughs> okay. And but, so I deny that it's a good I deny that it's a good impulse, and I I also deny that you lose anything, okay. <laughs> that you lose anything by by maintaining that distinction. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we can love things passionately, deeply, and be incredibly invested in their well being and what happens to them without without thinking that they are literally us Mm-mm. i mean I, I love my children passionately and deeply and uh they aren't me i mean mm-hmm. even even if and, and i don't even i don't even think of them i mean there's a way in which i think parenting can be subject to this distortion as well where you can view your children quite literally as an extension of you and yeah. i think i think that again i understand the impulse i just think it's a bad one as mm-hmm. is sort of my re- response and and the, and the counter is well isn't this part of what leads to all the passion of fandom? And I just don't think that you need that identification mm. to be passionately invested in uh, what what your teams are doing. Yeah, no, and yeah, and 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 you you just mentioned the, the word the that leads me to my next question: the familial aspect. Um, so I was intrigued and pleasantly surprised by uh, one of your argumentations or one of your points made in the book and and you spoke there of uh, having and and this is something completely different although it is related to what we just said you said that we need to adopt a female sports team to cheer for and and i have a double question here first of all there's the incredible uh, preference for the familial analogies and you just used it as well so Adoption is only one of the terms that you use, but you often take the familial analogy in consideration and you often take this as one of the main points of how to treat sports. And then the second part, why is it that you think a female sports need this special attention, if I can call it this way? So I I settled on familial love as a way to explore attachment to teams, primarily because it, I think it contrasts in interesting ways with romantic love. Mm-hmm. And so my, my selection of the metaphors and selection for the analogies was framed in part by the the sports fandom literature and mm-hmm. the, the way in which people would compare love of sports teams to love of uh, romantic partners, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think I, I think romantic love, love of romantic partners is different in important ways from familial love. And um, I think that the, I just think that the model of love where you're loving your brothers, sisters um, is a better, a better model for thinking about the love we have of sports teams than romantic love. And so that, that sort of comparison was set in many ways, just by the, the literature, even though I find it, I find it helpful and useful. Um, so that's, that's sort of the, the family, the love, uh, mm-hmm. answer to that question. As for the adoption of women's sports teams, I, 
this kind of really grew out of my own experience as a coach. So I coached youth soccer, or I used to anyway. I'm in semi-retirement now. <laughs> um, and I had I had boys teams. I coached boys teams first when my son was was playing, and then when he moved on to more competent uh, coaches, I I continued to coach younger kids, and I initially coached boys. But in the United States, anyway, there's a you know, girls sports at the lower level is a is a big thing, and mm-hmm. it's a uh, it's the soccer clubs um, have or try anyway to maintain a certain parity, a certain kind of div- equal devotion to both the boys and the girls sides. It's mm-hmm. there's not always equal demand. It's not always the case that they have the same number of boys teams as girls teams just because maybe there aren't enough girls coming out for the teams to mm-hmm. to be able to form them, but there's a high demand for participation and in general participation among girls in all levels of sport through, you know, high school and college is is quite even and quite high. And there's some historical reasons and some legal reasons, actually, in the United States why that's true. But you just don't see that carry through on the fandom side. You just don't see it. You just don't see dads who are very passionate about their daughters playing sports, um, supporting, supporting women's teams at higher levels. Hmm. And that struck me. It sort of struck me as... Um, a disconnect, right? Why? Mm. Why we have this active participate, active commitment to participation of girls, but once they uh, reach a certain level, we just don't. We're not fans of women's teams, and so again, the, the effort to kind of explore because it was true in my own life, and in some ways, it continues to be true in my own life. I've worked hard um, in light of my own arguments to to pay more attention to women's sports, to try to adopt um, women's teams and and pay more attention to them and support them. Uh, but I, I I didn't have that those attachments uh, previously. Um, mm. e- even as committed as I was, so I, I started out coaching boys, and I ended up uh, the last few years I was coaching. I, I had one year where I was coaching a boys team and a girls team, and that was just too much. And I ended up just coaching girls, and I really enjoyed, you know, coaching coaching the girls in some ways more than the boys. They're a lot easier to keep on task and practice and things like that. Um, <laughs> But I wasn't a fan, you know. I hadn't, mm. I hadn't been a fan of women's sports, and that just struck me as a disconnect. So the argument grew out of um, an effort to explore that that disconnect in my own life, and and then and then carrying through the 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 love, different models of love, and thinking about familial love, you know, that we we end up attached. To, many of us end up attached to the teams that we support through contingent historical reasons. Mm. Um, but adoption is another way to to, to bring about love, and so mm. um, it seemed it seemed a natural extension of the metaphor, mm. uh, the the analogy to kind of think about the possibility of adopting teams. Have you adopted a, a women's team? I'm, I adopted the uh, the OL Reign, uh, which they play in the NWSL, the National Women's Soccer League, and. Uh, they were in the uh, they were in the semifinal okay. uh, last year. Uh, they are they are good. I so the reason yeah I have it. I live in North Carolina. It makes no sense for me to support a team from Seattle. But um, there's I had to pick a team, and there are bizarre reasons why I I couldn't bring myself to support. There is a team in North Carolina, the North Carolina Courage, 
um, but they they're they're a different club from my local club okay. <laughs> and so it was a there was a bizarre i just couldn't bring myself to support an ncfc team okay. and i love the city of seattle so okay um, but that's a good way but, to have your own team if there's already this 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 emotional that you can't follow a certain team and you have to follow another one so yeah the the the, the beginning is there that's right Okay, now in conclusion, I want to return to your original love of the beautiful game and all the other sports you like. Now you write in the introduction of your book that writing a book on sports during the COVID-19 pandemic felt rather bizarre and even problematic. Not only because there were no sports to view as fans, at least in the beginning, but mainly also because there were no sports to play. Not for the professionals, but also not for the amateurs, you, me, our kids, and all of us who not only enjoy watching sports, but also actively participate in it. But going through your book, it seems that this personal way of missing sports as a fan or as a participant does not only function as a means to understand your argumentation, but also functions as, I believe at least, as the basic cornerstone of your fandom ethics. Now, I like the idea of amateur ethics, ethics that are formed by amor, by amare, by love, as the etymology of the word amateur reveals. Am I correct in bringing your ethics in that direction? And if so, or also if not, could you elaborate this a little bit, please? So is the idea, is the question just about what role the the love of the, love of the sports no, plays the, the, in the fandom no, ethic? The fact of that of the amateuristic part because it's not just the right. love part it's also the the the, the, the st that it starts from the bottom and then it goes upwards good good yeah so one of the things that i thought about and struggled with uh and continue to do so in a certain way is you know the, the role that being a fan plays i think is often different than the role that being a athlete plays the role that sports play for the people who participate in it is just different than often different than the role that uh sports play for the fan even though most most fans also place play sports in some capacity or at least have played sports in some capacity and so you know, thinking about the relationship between the, you know, in the United States, we call it the grassroots level of, mm -hmm. of sports um, and the higher levels of sport that we watch on television. My inclination is sometimes to think that they're just different things. And I don't, I, I don't think that's true, but entirely true because the people we watch play on television, the best players in the world started out playing <laughs> most of the time as, as kids um, mm. at the grassroots level. Mm. I, I do think, here, here's one thing, I'm not sure if I'm answering your question uh, fully, but one thing I would say is, I think there's a tendency to have the higher levels of sport distort the lower levels of sport. Mm -hmm. um, I talk about this a little bit in my chapter on objectification, where I, I think that the tendency to view sports through the lens of the way it's played at the highest levels distorts our engagement with it at the youth level and at the, you know, at the grassroots level. We forget that they're not only are they just kids, 
um, playing and, or, or forget kids. If, if it's an adult, you know, mm-hmm. adult league <laughs> on mm-hmm. a Thursday night, seven aside or something like that, or if it's a, you know, pick up basketball, um, at the gym or the park or whatever it happens to be. I mean, I think there's a tendency to, to think about what, what's going on there through the lens of how it's played at the highest levels, what the stakes are at the highest levels, what the value or how we relate to athletes as fans when they're playing at the highest levels and to lose sight of how the game can be good for the people who play it just for the sake of playing it. Mm-hmm. Right. I think I, I might put it by saying we instrumentalize sports at the lower levels by thinking of it as a means to achieving some mm-hmm. other other end, mm-hmm. a means to achieving some higher level of accomplishment. You know, in the US again, uh youth sports are often viewed as a means to achieving a college scholarship, for example. Mm-hmm. And, you know, at the at the extreme, you might achieve a professional career, you get the college scholarship and then you go on and you turn professional. It's kind of viewed as a means to that end. And I think that's um, a real distortion of what sports can be when it's just played for its own sake. Um, and um, I think that that's a way in which, and, and, I, and I, I talk about this, I don't go to it as much detail as maybe I could have, but I think that's a way in which our fandom can sometimes disport, or distort our mm. appreciation of sports. Mm. If if I can just turn this a little bit around, of course. Just, could you say, or would you be willing to say that we can not just say this about fandom, but also if we turn now to philosophy, just one second, can one say this about ethics in total as well? What you have been saying now about fandom, should we have ethics from the bottom up, or should we start from the top? If I can throw this just in the middle. Um. When when you say ethics, just well, you you talk about the ethics of fandom. If if we take it to the very metaphysical, philosophical level, I think that we can see something through this book, and 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 that's why I think talking about sports is is is, is wonderful in a philosophical way because it, you can say something about very philosophical concepts through sports. So maybe if my idea and also what I had through reading your book is that one can talk about ethics by this grassroots in, in a certain grassroots sense as well. And that's something that I felt coming through your book that you can not just talk about fandom in this way, but also about the whole philosophical concept of ethics too. Yes, I abs. So I am a I am a bottom up ethic. I'm a bottom up philosopher in many ways. I I I my the the way in which I confront and think about philosophical questions is through my my personal encounters with the world and my mm-hmm. personal encounters with other people and just trying to make sense of those things. I'm skeptical of an ethics that imposes some sort of rigid framework from the top down mm-hmm. without without paying attention to the particulars. Um, of of how humans actually have to live their lives and how humans actually do live their lives. Now that that's not to say that I think we just um, I I think I think philosophy is not anthropology. <laughs> I think mm-hmm. philosophy is not sociology. It's not just looking around and seeing well this is how human beings behave and this is how this is what we care about and and so on. I think philosophy can be revisionary. It can press us to to change and and so on but i i do think that it's philosophy is at its most compelling when it it's in direct it it rises out of our 
our daily confrontations with the world. And so if that's the if that's what you're thinking, I I, I completely agree. That's okay. you know, so I think some of the I think some of the things I talk about in trying to reflect on my engagement with sports have implications for other areas of life. And I also mm -hmm. think that there's other kinds of interesting explore, philosophical explorations that can grow out of out of that kind of reflection and that kind of um, that kind of confrontation. Okay, yeah, yeah, that was what, what I was aiming for. So thanks so much, Adam. Uh, you know, as well as I do that, we can go on and talk about this for hours and hours and hours, as we have done so many times. Yes, we can. Past, but unfortunately, we can't. Uh, however, for those who want to have a closer look at the topics confronted by Adam in his book, do go out and find it and have a clear, clear look at all the interesting topics that he confronts. The book again is called The Ethics of Span Sports Fandom, sorry, and it is published by Routledge for all the fans and for all those who want to get to know some philosophical ideas through the more familiar angle of sports and fandom. I can only but highly recommend this book. So thanks again, Adam. Uh, thank you very much. I really enjoyed the conversation. Me too. Thanks also to all the listeners for having joined us once again here at Bookaholics. And you, dear listeners, if you like our volunteer work here at PICT, you can now also consider supporting us by becoming an active member of our institution. For more information about how to join PICT, please visit our website. And if you wish to contribute to this series dedicated to books, maybe even by proposing a recent book, or if you would like to host an episode of Bookaholics, please do get in touch. My name is Christoph van Houten. Goodbye and thank you. <laughs>